Lord above us, hear my song. Tell me if I'm doing wrong. I'm just a man, not like you. If you saw through my eyes, what would you do? A simple life, that's what I feel. To want to sing, it's not unreal. So, Lord in heaven, let me know if you saw through my eyes. Where would you go? Welcome to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard and that was Through My Eyes by Ian Matthews. Actually, I don't think I've ever done this before. I've got Ian Clayton, who's co-written this wonderful memoir with Ian Matthews. And the two Ians are here in person for the Strange Brew. Welcome the two Ians. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah. Firstly, shall I call you Ian C or Ian Clayton? <laughs> okay. How did you get to link up with Ian Matthews to support him with his new autobiography? It was an email. A lot of things start with an email arriving these days, uh, about over 10 years ago, I think. And this email said, I hope you don't mind writing to me out of the blue, but I've just read your book, Bringing It All Back Home. I'd, I'd written my own music memoir called Bringing It All Back Home about my adventures with music. And... Um, Went on to say how much he'd enjoyed reading it. He'd like to meet me one day when he was on tour next time. It'd be nice if we could meet up. Strangely, I was enjoying Ian's latest recording that he'd done with a guy called Egbert Derricks, a brilliant Dutch jazz pianist. Mm. And uh, I told him so. And he said, oh, you, you know my music then? I said, yeah, of course I know your music. I've known your music since I was a boy singing along to, to Woodstock. 
so it became a nice e- email friendship. And then within a few months, yeah. Ian was on tour with uh, a, a guy called B.J. Bartmans, a, a quite brilliant Dutch guitar player and producer, very, very serious musician, yeah, yeah. well-beloved in, in, in Holland. Then we sat drinking tea at our kitchen table and he, he dropped the bombshell. I've been thinking about writing my mem- memoir and I'd like you to do it. Uh, I think sitting around your kitchen table that uh, that that day really cemented a lot of the friendship. You know, we found we out we had a lot more in common than just that. Yeah, we did. Just to sorry, just to pick up on what I thought, I actually said no to him at first. Oh. So it wasn't an immediate click friendship. Yeah, let's do it quickly. I, you, I, you were very gentle about it. You said. Uh, I don't think I should be the one that writes it for you. Yeah. I which was a sort of a gentle no. <laughs> I, I said, you you should write it. Yeah. But if you do, I'll I'll have a look at it and, and perhaps offer some tips and, and advice. I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't set myself up as a person who was a biographer of people. Mm-hmm. I've only ever done it a couple of times. But the beauty of it was we, we stayed friends. I mean, I think we clicked straight away as mates and, and we've stayed friends. And so every time he tours England, he comes and sees me. And every yeah. time I'd see you again, you'd say, you started it? And I'd say, no, I haven't. No, I tried. <laughs> I did make a couple of half-hearted attempts yeah. at writing forwards and stuff like that. Uh, did I send that stuff to you? You did? Yeah. You did? Um but uh, it just, it seemed to me like this huge mountain to climb to write a book. Writing a song is one thing, but writing a book, it just, it was overwhelming. I just couldn't get my head around it, and I just could not get going. I didn't have a format, and that's also what Ian brought to me to in order for us to write the book. He showed me the process of writing a book which I, I had no knowledge of whatsoever. I, I mean, I, I think the stories were waiting to come out. Anybody who's had a career like Ian's and looks back on his life already has the knowledge mm. of what they want to say about their life, but it's still inside. Just to quickly tell you, I, 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 it was a mate of my 65th birthday in Germany, and I flew over to his birthday party, and, and then I had four or five more days spare. So... I said to him, look, you live near the German border. It's 50 mile away from my mate's birthday party. I'll come over and let's sit down and talk. I went and stayed at his house for four or five days. It was like clocking on at a factory. We'd get up <laughs> on a morning, have a bit of breakfast, then get a load of photocopy paper and a pen. And it, whatever he told me, I wrote it down. And we just carried on like that for four yeah. days. Actually, by the second day, we were, we were going deep into the evening and his wife, Marley, was telling us to stop and have food. <laughs> um, and then I came home, yeah. quickly <clears throat> typed up the notes that I'd made, sent them to him. I said, look, this is 30, 40 pages of your life story. Do you agree with it? Do you like it? If so, shall we carry on? And he liked it, so we carried on. And I fleshed it out. Yeah, you, you I, put all I, the... Well, fleshed it out. I, I made it more mine than his. Yeah, yeah. I put, I put, I put the Ian into, uh, into, into what he was saying and sent it back to him. And, yeah. and once I put my stuff in, that, that fattened it out by about another third or a half. Yeah, yeah. 
and then that process kept moving back and forth and then then we knew that that we had something and we and we set up more dates to do the same thing again the book describes how you went down to london at age 18 got a job on carnaby street really quickly in a shoe shop as you do yeah and then soon you got to be a singer in a band called the pyramid who then got a record deal and all this in the space of... A vague plan that I had in my head. Not even a plan, it was just... I, th- I thought, in my naivety, if I get a job in Carnaby Street, it doesn't really matter what I'm doing as long as I'm meeting people. And it was at a point where all musical hell was breaking loose and everybody was now coming down Carnaby Street to find out a what it was all about and the musicians were coming down to buy their their clothes their garb yeah and um i thought if i work in carnaby street i'm gonna meet all these people and i'd already been in in a couple of bands back in uh in mm. in scunthorpe so i i sort of i i had a, a a beginning there i knew sort of what it might be like to be in a band and i was right i mean within Within the first week of uh, of working in that shoe shop, I started meeting people. Dave Clark Five came in in the first week, and Mark Boland came to my shoes. Mark Boland came yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, there's, I'm sure there's lots that I've forgotten who came in to buy the shoes, but uh, it was uh, next to next to Topper, uh, which was virtually next door to us. Ravel was the place to be, and we were on a corner as well, a corner that no longer exists. I went down Carnaby Street uh, with my wife a couple of years ago to show her, and that corner has gone. There was a street, and it's completely gone. It's a shopping so, centre or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's um, it was so well situated the shop, uh, and if you look back at sixties uh, photos of Carnaby Street, a lot of the posing is done on that corner as well, where Ravel's was. But that was my plan, um, and. I suppose it worked. You know, at a certain point, um, somebody came in, a friend who's one of my oldest friends now came in. He was working for Radio Caroline, and he knew these two guys that were starting a band, which would have been Pyramid. They were looking for somebody that could sing high harmony, and said, I'll do that. London that I used to know one from 30 years ago Declares its lifeless status quo So it goes In London they got subway trains House of Lords and Acid Rain the Albert Hall, it still remains In London where I spent my prime Youth was king that summertime Thought I'd pull the perfect crime Just being there Sleeping by your side In London we were scattered meant everything Now we choke on bigger things Cause who said 
forgotten kings and queens from strike intensive About a year or two later, Ashley Hutchins of Fairport Convention got in contact. How was that made? We, uh, Pyramid signed to Deeram, and uh, we made two singles for them. Only one of them was actually released. And then the, uh, the, the guitar player in Pyramid had an accident on stage where he, he got a really huge electric shock. And that put us temporarily out of action. And while we were out of action, our manager got a phone call from Denny Cordell, who'd produced our single, uh, saying that he just produced another single for a band called Procol Harum, and it looked like it was going to happen, and they needed someone to take care of business for them. And was he interested? And Steve was out of action, so he said yes, and he never came back. <laughs> from that sort of breakup of Pyramid... Um, I'd already, I'd be, I was friends with Tony Hall, who was running DRM at the time, and I was even better friends uh, with his, his ex-wife, who gave me a place to stay during that time. And one day I, I went back to her house, and uh, she said, uh, Tony's called, and um, uh, he wants you to give him a ring. He needs to ask you something. And I called him up, and he said uh, that he'd spoken to Ashley. He knew Ashley somehow through the business. Ashley was interested in uh, Steve, actually. Oh. <laughs> yeah, he was interested in Steve um, joining Fairport. And, of course, Steve was out of action, and uh, he was very, very shy about, gun-shy about getting back into it again. And um, Tony said, are you interested? And I said, yeah, I'd be interested. I didn't know who they were. So he, he hooked up uh, um, Ashley and myself. I went down to meet him at Sound Techniques, and yeah, the rest is uh, in the book. <laughs> and you stayed for a couple of Fairport albums. Yeah, I was. Uh, I did the first album. First of all, we worked on that single. If I had a ribbon bow, yeah, that was the very first thing I did. Then we made. We got the deal with Polydor through Joe Boyd, and uh, we made that first album. At some point, we had a single on track. 
Was that was Ribbonbow on track? I think it was, was, wasn't was on it? Track, yeah. yeah, it was all quite confusing. We had a single on track, and then we signed to Polydor and made an album for Polydor. And then Chris Blackwell came along when he heard the album and said, "I, I want these people." Mm. And Chris was already working with uh, Nick Drake, who Joe managed, and the incredible string. Oh, they were an electro, weren't they? The string band. And Joe was bringing all sorts of music to them. That was the thing. Yeah. Because he was American. He had access to the latest stuff from Leonard Cohen and Johnny Mitchell, stuff that had never been released. Joe had been uh, Joe had been an active member of the Newport Jazz and Folk Festival for a number of years. So he got to know a lot of artists, some of them uh, better than others. And uh, I think for, for a short time, he and Joe had a thing going on. But he somehow gained access to acetates, to publishing demos from these people. And he started feeding us all this all this stuff that we'd never, ever heard of. Yeah, Leonard Cohen, before Leonard had an album. Joni, before she had an album. We started... They were singing Suzanne before Leonard Cohen had released it, weren't they? Yeah, Night in the City. Yeah. Uh, there were quite a few uh, songs that we were playing live before the original versions came out. And this was a period where the Fairport sound and yours was evolving from what could be seen as a sort of West Coast sound and then the folk influences started to come in? I suppose it was not that much while I was still in the band. Well, not that much until Sandy joined. That was that was the turning point. When Sandy joined the band, uh, she brought all of that genre of music into the band which they wholeheartedly embraced. They loved the idea of taking a folk song and putting electric instruments behind it because nobody else was doing it then. I think, um, who was it said that Fairport may well have coined the phrase folk rock in, in Europe? I think it's fair to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So she, when she started bringing that, that material in, that's when the direction changed a little bit. Up until that point, we were uh, writing a little bit, Richard more than anybody else. Mm. Uh, Ashley was writing his his sort of blues-influenced, um, he'd probably hate me for saying this, but novelty songs. Mm. But Richard was, was emerging as a writer, and I latched onto that and began co-writing with Richard a little bit. But mostly we were doing, uh, live, we were doing cover songs from uh, uh, American singer-songwriters, obscure, Jim and Gene. And even Leonard Cohen and Joni were obscure at that point too. But yeah, it all changed when, when Sandy arrived. One of the lovely things about the book is that each passage of it has a song of yours associated with it that encapsulates that period in your life. And it's even better as there's a deluxe edition of the book that comes with a double CD of those songs. And that's such a fantastic combination. And in this particular chapter that covers much of your time in Fairport, there's a song that you first did as part of Plain Song, which is even The Guiding Light, which has a bit of a reference to that period, I think. Um, was it in essence about the time where you were kind of pushed out of the band? It was just about that time period, yeah. You know, Richard wrote Meet on the Ledge and uh, 
uh, I thought that this I need to respond to this song. Once I'd gotten going again, I looked back and thought, yeah, I can I can write something like that as well. And that's when I wrote even the guiding light. Mm. And another thing I discovered in Through My Eyes was that at the time in Fairport, you actually didn't play guitar? No. I actually, right towards the end of Fairport, I started learning to play the guitar. Richard took me down Shaftesbury Avenue one day and uh, helped me uh, pick out a, I think it was a Hohner or a Hofner or something. Uh, no, it's something very inexpensive. And uh, he started showing me chords, basic chords. And, uh, you know, once you've got three chords, you're off and running, really. Um, so preparing for Matthew's Southern Comfort, I started writing songs.
and one of the following songs referenced in your book is Knowing the Game. There's some great lines in it where you're referring to being written off and mm-hmm. then coming back. I mean, it must have been a real setback leaving Fairport, but it was a push that spurred you on. Yeah, I mean, that's another song about uh, about reflection on what this business can do to some people. But if you don't let it, you know, if you have a strong will and a determination and a passion for what you're doing, you can keep moving forward. And that, that that's what knowing the game is all about. Not that I ever knew the game. <laughs> <laughs> the short period that you were leading Matthew's Southern Comfort was obviously remarkably successful. However, your book vividly describes the impact that such a massive hit that Woodstock was had on you. Yeah, it was a blessing and a curse, really. A bit more of a curse than a blessing at the time. It, it's become far more of a blessing in uh, in later years. But um, I just... Well, it makes sense that as a song becomes more and more popular, uh, then the media gets involved. And you need the media to raise the profile. But where do you where do you find that balance? You know, where's where's that fine line between being a, a songwriter, a serious songwriter, uh, and uh, raising the profile? And I could, I just couldn't find it, uh, and consequently, I, I let I let the media side of it take over my life in Southern Comfort to my frustrations, and I, I just could not find that space that I desperately needed to be a songwriter. And I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to deal with it. And uh, uh, I got, I became moody. I, I started seeing faults in the music that probably weren't even there mm. to the point where that, that turned into a, well, a paranoia really. Mm. And that paranoia just shut me down. There was an interesting point on this subject when we were sat, in Holland, writing this memoir. And Ian said to me, I don't know if you remember this, Ian, Ian said to me one day, he said, you know, at that time, I started to dread phone calls from my own management because the, it, it, whereas in former times they'd been phoning me to ask me what material I'd got ready and written, now they were t- phoning me to tell me I had to go somewhere to have my photograph taken. Yeah. And... And it became ridiculous. It was it was like it wasn't just one photo a day. It's ten, twenty, yeah. thirty times yeah. you've got to stand somewhere and have your yeah. photograph taken with interviews as well. Yeah. yeah, and no time at all for for the the music. This is a song about the brightness and the flame. A song I want you all to hear You may be written off And you may be taken down It's knowing how to stay the same Knowing how to play that game I am the old eternal optimistic fool you only see before my eyes There is another time There is another way It's knowing how to hold the sign 
knowing when to cross that line. There's an awful lot of people that I know, and most I never recognize offhand. Did you maybe take to running? Did you make it on your own? I've seen it in your eyes. Beyond the shadow of a doubt, I realize this is a song about the vision in the night, a voice to make you all believe. You may be. It's knowing how to hit your stride, knowing when to buy that ride. about the Woodstock period is that it's an accident. You know, they never meant to have it as a, as a record. They, they go into a BBC studio one day, uh, they've got three songs ready for a recording session, they want four. Ian has happened to have bought Johnny Mitchell's album, yeah. is it Ladies, <laughs> Ladies of the Canyon, Canyon, Ladies yeah. of the Canyon earlier that week, yeah. liked Woodstock, the festival hadn't long since happened. Um, so it's still in everybody's mind. I think the film is probably out by that point. And they do a, a, just a, a version of it, a nice version of it, in the radio studio. Sorry, I'm telling this story. Yeah, no, we, we, uh, we, were, we, we decided to rehearse the songs we were going to play at the yeah. BBC yeah. <clears throat> that day. And, and, of course, I walked in with the album and, and uh, I told them, uh, you know, I, th- I, I really like this song. Let's see what we can do with it. And the version that we worked up in those two hours uh, in the afternoon is the version that we laid down that evening at the BBC, which is the version that we ultimately recorded for the single. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the first 
our first attempt at it, we all really liked what was coming out of there. And, and that was a lot to do with Gordon's pedal steel part as well. You know, he came up with that riff, that... Which was the hook, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Rag and Bone Man's proved that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was an accident. Yeah, it was never meant to be a single, but the response when the BBC session was played was just overwhelming. They... Uh, the uh, the the record company were just deluged with phone calls. They knew nothing about it. They called the management. They knew nothing about it. They had no information on it at all. Yeah, it became record of the week. Tony Blackman it, made it his record of of the week. He, he he's the one. He's responsible for it being a hit. Tony Blackburn. If it was faltering when Tony took it and made it his record of the week, it was. I think it was in the 30s or something, and it was faltering. And uh, he, what did he play? Six or seven times a day or something. Mm-hmm. And just got all this airplay and began to sell. It's, it's, it's just a series of events that created a monster. Stop. 
It's a, it's a very normal, standard, linear narrative that starts with a boy being born and works towards him being 73 years old now. But there are interjections both in the, in the narrative of the story itself, but especially with some of the songs, that the songs, are this, the songs might have been written 25, 30 years after the time that the narrative is suggesting. Mm. But it's taken him that long to, to process it, it and process it. Yeah, like our minds do. You know, sometimes our minds and memories can process something that happened two minutes ago. Sometimes it takes months to settle before we have an idea on what happened. Mm. And sometimes songs just come out, and you truly don't know what they mean until later. I was just mm-hmm. talking about that last night. Mm-hmm. I wrote a song uh, while I was living in Texas. A song called Compass and Chart. I started writing this song about a sea captain. He went to sea and he discovered something. He found gold and um, he decided that he didn't want it. And he left it where it was and came back and was rejected by the people he worked for because he'd left that gold behind. And uh, he became effectively a missionless man i don't now i don't know why it ended like that because my story didn't end like that but it wasn't until i finished the song that i realized this is not about ben riley the sea captain this song's about me this is a song about my career and my experiences i i strongly believe at least in my case that songs come through me not from me I really, really believe that. I, th- I believe that that I, I'm just a vehicle for that particular song uh, and that particular message. And uh, for me, that that song, Compass and Chart, proved my point that the song wrote itself and then said to me, uh, "You think it's about a sea captain, but read it very carefully. It's not about a sea captain at all. This is about you." was a sailor marooned on dry land a voyageless captain a cruelest command with the wind in his hair he's a sight to behold but an oceanless sailor will not be consoled and he once was a young man and not unlike me with the chart and the compass for his guarantee with a hand on the wheel and a full magazine If you'd known young Riley, you'd know what I mean 
Oh, he would not hold back. There was no compromise. It was full speed ahead, take them all by surprise. And the greatest of sailors changed course and heaved to for Benjamin Riley, his ship and his crew. And he cried, Oh, anchors away. Live for the given day after day. Now most men I know you would not see for dust As their passion for treasure turned into a lust And Ben the adventurer was still unprepared When purely by chance he discovered it there Oh it danced and it sparkled, it beckoned, it cried Please keep me and take me along for the ride For you know I could make you a young millionaire Come now, Captain Riley, you don't have a prayer. Ben said, Oh, for all of your shining, I don't give a damn. And you will not distract me from what I've begun. For the stars are my sisters, the sea is my heart. And I will not be drawn from this cumbersome chart. He cried, oh, anchors away, live for the given day after day, oh, laugh and be sad, just believe in yourself. So they hoisted the anchor and they folded the chain As he pointed her eastwards and back home again It was seventeen days, it was sixteen long nights Before they encountered the strangest of sight When they came down to meet him, they took him by force And they questioned his morals for leaving that purse Saying we made you a captain, a company but now, Seaman Riley, you don't suit our plan. Well, they've taken his vessel and they've paid off the crew. And they've taken his charts and his compasses too. But Benjamin Riley, he still has the heart and the will and the spirit he's had from the start. He cries, Oh, anchors away. Live for the given day after day Oh, laugh and be sad Just believe in yourself and trust In your God Well, there once was a sailor Marooned on dry land He was a voyageless captain He was a Missionless man
a year or two back, you reactivated the Matthew Southern Comfort banner and released a new record. Still am. Yeah. And there's a song on it called Jive Pajamas that refers to spring 1973. Wasn't that the period where you moved lock, stock and barrel over to California to work with Michael Nesmith, originally of the That's Wolves? That's right. Yeah. That was such a risk. It's all a risk. This whole life's a risk. Yeah. What I do is a, is a huge risk. There are no guarantees. There's no safety nets in, in being a singer-songwriter. And again, my idea for Jive Pajamas was to write a song about Los Angeles showing what a phony place Los Angeles can be. Um, and as I was writing the song, I found myself reflecting and going back to the time when when I first moved there, showing the difference in how it was then and how it's become in later years. I took Egbert to uh, Los Angeles, to the West Coast, to do a little tour about five years ago. And uh, when I got back from that trip with Egbert, I, I had a completely different view on California. And that's when I, I wrote uh, I wrote a song called Chasing Rainbows as well on the same album that was exactly about the same thing about California. Mm. Uh, when, I, when I first went to Southern California, I, I felt I had a sense of coming home. I felt that during my time in plain song, I always felt a bit like a fish out of water. I didn't really feel that my music was necessarily meant to be created in London. Mm. A lot of my influences were coming from from the US. Because you signed with Plain Song to Electra, which obviously was uh, an American yeah, label. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think Jack Holtzman had always been a fan. And when he found out that Plain Song was up for grabs, he instructed his people in London to make sure that we signed to Electra. But um, I never felt that what I was doing was going to cause, have too much impact in, in England. I always thought that I need to get to California because that's where the that's where the, the mine is, that's where the source of what I'm doing is coming from. I don't know how, but... Well, a lot of my influences were coming from uh, from the USA too. A lot of my songwriting influences were coming from there. I listened to a lot of American music. Uh, you know, country that became country folk, that became folk, that became singer-songwriter. So going to L.A. was just a... A natural step and when that door opened for me I just I stuck my foot in it and I was gone. So how long did you stay in California? First time well I went there in 73 to make the album yeah and I left in 76 and um, at that point I'd had enough of it at least in Southern California it's it was a very it's a very dog-eat-dog kind of place I'd had enough. I'd met a girl and uh, from Seattle, and I decided that uh, I was going to go up to the Pacific Northwest and live up there for a time. And I, I basically turned my back on what I'd been doing in California and reinvented myself up there, <laughs> doing something completely different.
wheels down Loading into Angel Town Far as the eye can see An ocean of humanity So tight for God's sake Adrenaline keeps me awake Springtime 1973 Changing my philosophy Well let's go Say when Can it be that late again First thing crack of dawn I'll make peace with that L.A. morning Surf's up so fine Echoes of a different time Strange days best forgotten Man, this desert town is getting hotter Well, hey there, Angel Town Tell me all your dirty secrets Wonder, do you even see me Cruising in your Lamborghini Say there, Angel Town Show me all your dirty laundry Wet dreams and psychodramas And where'd you get them jive pajamas? Such foreign discipline Ground shakes, he big fun I wonder should I turn and run From Ventura Boulevard It sparkles like a Christmas card Strange days remembering How nothing felt quite genuine True love or not Gave it everything I've got Top ten, flat broke Jive town, she's a cruel joke Dark times, so alone Someday soon I'm going home Big plans, long thin rope I'm humming like a gyroscope At a certain point, I'd been in a band called Hi-Fi, and at a certain point, a friend of mine, Sandy Robertson, phoned me up. Sandy had been the producer on uh, the Plainsong album. Sandy phoned me up and said, listen, I've started my own record label. 
and I've been thinking about you, and I'd really like you to record an album for my label. What are you doing? And the timing was perfect. I was at the end of Hi-Fi, and uh, I was floundering, trying to figure out what I wanted to do next. Hi-Fi had ended quite suddenly, and I, it wasn't it wasn't planned. So I said, yeah, I'll, uh, and he said, we'll come to London. Let's talk about it. You know, we'll look at songs, see what you've got, see what you like. I made Stealing Home for Sandy, and that was the beginning of another era because uh, he hooked up with the people I'd been working with in Seattle. And through them, we got on a, a, a US release with a label called Mushroom. And um, we had a top 10 single. It's a beautiful story that I'm, I hope you'll tell. It, yeah. Uh, they, they, uh, Mushroom were a small Canadian yeah. label. Yeah. And they listened to the, the, the demos and they said, there's a hit on here and we're not going to tell you what it is. Yeah, unless you sign. Unless you us. sign. They said, we've, we've run a test. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, our test results tell us that there's a top 10 single on this album, but we're not going to tell you what it is. Unless you give us the album. And they were right. And they were right. Yeah. 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 What was that test? He never did, Shelley never did tell me how they'd, uh, how they'd come to that determination that there was a top 10 single on there, but they were right. And it's a great song. I mean, it's, it's a pop stroke rock song. Shake it. And I think it's, we're getting to the point in Ian's career now where all these different influences have come to bear. So it starts out with a love of, of harmony singing, and then it comes it comes to American music and the, the, the singer-songwriters, then the country stuff that he's doing in, in, in California, then the rock influence comes in with Dave Surkamp and, and in I-Fi yeah. in Seattle. So you've got you've got all the different strands coming together. And I think they do come together on that album. And, and Shaky is a song that's born out of all those different mothers and fathers. Mm, mm. Yeah. And it's a song that appealed to teenage America. Absolutely. It's just about, about a teenage girl, high school girl, feeling her oats, really. And it just had that universal appeal and... Uh, that. It became a theme show on a film, didn't it? Yeah, it was on a film called Little Darlings, yeah, which they recently reissued. I know they reissued it because they, they re-upped my deal with them. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. And was it trouble with the label that scuppered? Any further chance of success? Um, the label, yeah, Mushroom was a quite a small operation out of Vancouver, and by the time I made my second album, the man who had signed me to Mushroom uh, died of a brain hemorrhage. I was actually, uh, Shake It was still in the top 10 when he died. And uh, I was in Europe touring. I remember when I got the news, I thought, that's it. That's the end of that. Now what? It was such a small operation that the, 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 the owner... Did everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And had a quite chaotic system. Yeah. Nobody, nobody really could figure out what he'd done or how he'd done it. And, um, within a year, the label was gone. They took that second album, but, uh, the, 
the man they brought in to take Shelley's place. Uh, I didn't like him. I didn't get on with him. I didn't like his ideas. He was very unmusical. We just uh, we just butted heads all the time. Uh, consequently, he didn't want to do things for me, and uh, it, it just all kind of frittered away. Mm. And as we move into the 80s, you went into A&R? I did, yeah. I moved back to uh, Los Angeles, not really knowing what I was going to do. And I went to visit an old friend of mine, a man named Lionel Conway, who had been my publisher when I was in Plainsong. Uh, he was in he was in London at that time. 
and uh, working for Chris Blackwell. And Chris had a publishing arm, and Lionel was the head of that. And uh, since that time, Lionel had moved to L.A., and he'd set up the same publishing company in L.A., uh, still with Chris Blackwell, still with Island. And I went in to talk to him about where I was at and see if he had any ideas as to what I might do, because I, I really didn't know. And he said, well, it's funny because we're at a point now where we're looking to expand this office to be more than a publishing company. We're looking to form a West Coast arm of uh, Island Records. Mm. And we want somebody with uh, musical experience to uh, be an A&R person on the West Coast here in Southern California. Mm. Are you interested? <laughs> it was just absolutely perfect timing. So I said, yeah, and I, I took the job. It was basically a, a kind of a nine-to-five job, more more of a 11 to midnight job, but um, uh, I still had to go into an office and, and make an appearance there and work from the office. And I did it for a couple of years. It it didn't take very... It took about a year before I realized that I wasn't that suited to do that job. I, I was too much of an artist. I had too much empathy for the acts that mm. that the record companies were trying to screw over. <laughs> and uh, I couldn't, in all honesty, advise them to do things that I didn't believe they should do. That job just sort of disintegrated uh, at the same time time when Wyndham Hill came along and said they were starting a, a singer-songwriter arm of uh, Wyndham Hill, a little boutique label to do singer-songwriters. And uh, I, I knew some of the people at Wyndham Hill because while I was at Ireland, uh, I'd found um, music by this Canadian girl called Jane Sippery. I was completely in love with what she was writing and what she, the way she was singing and the way she was approaching her music. Took it to Lionel, and um, Lionel listened to it, and he said, it's good, but we've already got one. And I said, what do you mean you've already got one? He said, yeah, we've, uh, we've already got a female singer-songwriter that we're working with. Uh, this girl, Jamie Bernstein, who was Leonard Bernstein's daughter. And um, he said, we're, we're really committed to Jamie, and I don't think we can handle two female singer-songwriters at the same time. And uh, I said, okay, and I immediately took it over to my friend at Wyndham Hill and uh, gave it to him, and I said, Island's rejected this. Do whatever you want with it. And she ended up on the vocal label over at Wyndham Hill. And through that, they gave me a job at Wyndham Hill doing A&R there. I did that for about a year. I, while I was there, I, I had an idea for an album, sort of a concept thing. It would be an album that was acoustic-based, so sort of ambiently based. It would be all one person's material, so one, one songwriter and... It would be interpretations of, of those songs. And then on top of that, we were going to put, uh, on each track, I wanted to put a different New Age keyboard player. Because Windham Hill was predominantly New Age. Yeah, New Age ambient. Yeah, yeah. They had a, a, a singer-songwriter, a, a lady called Barbara Higby, 
who was getting ready to make a solo album for Wyndham Hill. And uh, I thought it would really suit her perfectly. She rejected it. They rejected it. I was very into the idea. So I decided, okay, I'm going to do it myself. And at that point, I'd already played Crocodine 86. Mm. And um, I decided through prompting from other people that I wanted to get back in the saddle again and see what I could do, see if it really was gone and see if I, see if I felt like I could uh, create some meaningful music. And Don't that, be shy here. Tell, tell, tell her what prompted you. Oh, Robert Plant took me aside backstage at Crocody after I'd done my performance and said, what are you fucking about? <laughs> <laughs> you shouldn't be doing A&R. Why are you doing A&R? You should be out there. You should be writing. You just played for 20,000 people and they were hysterical about what you were doing. How can you possibly think that your career's over? Get back out there and do it. And I took it to heart. And it so it all kind of coincided, this little concept I had and what Robert said and the fact that I wasn't really enjoying. The, the vocal label never completely materialized and I ended up looking for ambient keyboard players and stuff. I just wasn't into it. So I, I, I left Wyndham Hill to pursue this project, decided on Jules Shear, that it would be Jules Shear. I, I went through a number of ideas. I thought Richard might be a good... Uh, a good one to to cover I thought about Van at that time but I wasn't quite ready to do Van and I thought no I want somebody that has had success but nobody knows who they are and Jules had had uh, success he'd had two top ten singles with the Bengals and Cindy Lauper I was a big fan of his writing and I thought right I'm going to do Jules here so I put this whole concept together I made demos uh, I sent those demos out and I got myself a manager, and he said, let's send a copy to Wyndham Hill. <laughs> sent it to Wyndham Hill, and they signed me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. After all that. Yeah. Was that a walking... Uh, walking a changing line. And that was my that was my entrance back into, uh, well, for the first time, really, being a, a serious songwriter. You know, it gave me a cushion because I didn't have to have songs for that album. That they were all somebody else's songs. But it set me writing again, and um, and at that point, uh, uh, I moved to Texas. I'd made the album in, in uh, I'd made the demos in Texas. Mm. I made the album in L.A., but uh, I got on really well with my producer, Mark Holman. And at a certain point, I just uh, he said, "Yeah, come to Austin. It's a great town. You'll you'll love it here. There's a lot of songwriters." And he was right. It was a it was a real breeding ground at that point, and very much a, a catalyst for what I started creating. At the highest point on Squirrel Hill, wind was whistling, whistling a song my heart obeys. At the highest point on Squirrel Hill I am counting backwards I suppose I'm counting back the days From the highest point on Squirrel Hill I see everything 
Every little piece becomes complete. I look out the way I never looked in childhood days, when all my hanging head saw was my feet. Walking a changing line, like the one between the sea and shore. I use that memory now for an easy smile. My heart goes rushing through those open doors when I'm falling like. The silent stone resistance fails till I dream I'm on that hill again. When I'm falling like the silent stone, resistance fails till I wish from out of God's sky here I'll land. Walking a changing line, like the one between the sea and shore. I use that memory now for an easy smile. My heart goes rushing through those open. Rushing through those open doors. You mentioned in the book about moving to Texas and uh, building a house, Swine, Swine Lake. Lake. Yeah, and that being, in some ways, a difficult or mixed period. It for you. was. Yeah, uh, I, I I got married in that period to a, a Texas girl. Realized quite quickly that I'd married for all the wrong reasons. We built this monster out in a field in outside Austin. Uh, I called it the money pit. <laughs> <laughs> um, I enjoyed my time in Austin. I, I I enjoyed some of my time at Swine Lake as well. It was a it was a, a a wonderful kind of tranquil place to be out there with nobody else around and uh, just dogs and lots of places to walk and. And building parties that they had at, at one time were, were you know, they'd, they'd invite all the friends around and make food and uh, on the promise that you've got to help put a few <laughs> walls up with us. And yeah, exactly. Like so yeah. I see I see that, sure me interjecting, but, and I haven't told you this ever before, Ian, but when we were writing the book, I, I always saw that those Texas years and that's why Lake House as a kind of project that didn't get finished mm. and weren't going to be finished. But at the same time, a fertile time for his own imagination. Very much so. Because it, it's it's like anything that we do in life that is a project, it's not necessarily the project itself that is mm. teasing your imagination and teasing your, your willingness. It's it's the side things that, that come off it. The Dutch have a, a wonderful proverb that they, they say sometimes... 
putting up the tent is finer than the circus. So <laughs> it, it's that thing of you're building something that you know might not get finished, but it's a, it's a fun ride along yeah, the exactly. way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And my songwriting developed beyond all boundaries. I, I credit my time in Texas for making me an all-around songwriter. I, I think had I not moved to Austin, I wouldn't have been the writer I am today. It really, it really taught me the value of taking your time, I'm talking about the text mostly, taking your time with it and fine-tuning it and making it as real and as loving as possible. Some of those songs that I wrote in that 10-year period in Texas are some of my, the, my favorite things. I, I still play quite a lot of them live. And Tigers Will Survive, part two. Darcy's song dates from that period, doesn't it? Yeah, that's that's from that period in Texas, yeah. She came out to visit. That's your daughter, is Yeah, it? my daughter, Darcy. She came out to visit for a couple of months in, in the summer of uh, early 90s, yeah. yeah I realised when she was out there... At, even though she was a grown woman in her late 20s, she just was quite naive about life. and She'd had a few setbacks and stuff, and I think uh, her, her time out in, in Texas was really good for her. She, and she and I got to, to bond like we hadn't done before. She was in America and you were in London? She was in London, yeah. Yeah, she, uh, her and her mom came out uh, once I'd settled in L.A., in 73 and but they only stayed for a year and then they went back to London and we didn't have a lot of contact in those next 10-15 years Gave you my eyes, show me where 
so I'm writing to tell you I see it all clearly now What happened then wasn't right Cause I cheated you girl And I cheated myself But I thank God we made it in spite It's a dangerous weapon that mind overloaded And not an unusual sight What I'm trying to tell you Darcy, I love you In so many ways we're alike And I know how you're feeling I've been there myself once or twice And the next song is by More Than A Song. Okay. And then we talked about your move from London to California. And now you've moved, made a move from Texas to the Netherlands. Yeah. I had a Dutch publisher for my music uh, who lived in Amsterdam. And I'd been thinking more and more about moving back to Europe in, in those the second five years in Texas I'd been thinking about an escape plan. Mm. She really gave me the the possibility of, of doing that. Mm. She had a, a, a big flat in uh, Amsterdam that was on three floors and um, the top floor was empty and that was an opportunity she said you can you know you come and stay there until you find out what where you want to go and what you want to do that enabled me to to make plans to move back to europe so the fact that it was amsterdam was sort of random really you said though that you had a yearning to be european again you had nearly 30 years in america by yeah, that point 27 years and yeah. you had a yearning to be I european did. i really missed being European. Uh, I came over and played a lot and it really pulled at me when I had to go back and I I wasn't quite sure what that was about until I realized that I just wasn't enjoying my time in America. I wasn't enjoying essentially being an American. I didn't want to be an American. I, I just, there was something inside of me that that just felt uneasy about living in America at that time, particularly when uh, Bush Jr. became, he became governor of Texas and, and things began to change in, in, in central Texas uh, and the tech industry, tech industry started moving into Austin and driving all the, the residents out to the uh, suburbs and prices of everything was going up. It was just a weird time. And I, I just, I wasn't enjoying it. I found myself not going into Austin as much because I just didn't want to mingle with those people. And I eventually figured out that I just I need to get back to Europe. I, I need to learn how to be European again. And Yvonne gave me gave me that escape route. It could have been London. It could have been Hamburg. It could have been anywhere. But it would happen to be Amsterdam. 
Mm. And obviously, while you're over in and living in the Netherlands, you've recorded with musicians uh, from that that country, uh, including you know the More Than a Song project. Could you just tell me about the um, background behind the song "Meaning to Life"? Yeah, once I got to Amsterdam, I, I felt a bit lost. I didn't really uh, okay. I, I, I made the leap. Now what? Uh, and I, I had to figure out what I was going to do with with the rest of my life. I needed to make friends with with the Netherlands and um, see how I could. Uh, move with my music uh, and again Yvonne came to the rescue there when she introduced me to Art van der Veen who was a, a, a singer-songwriter that I had an intense affinity to. He and I started going out and playing and that triggered my songwriting again and at that point while I was still in Amsterdam I started I, 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 start, I wrote reflective songs um, and I also wrote forward-thinking songs too, and that uh, mean a meaning to life was was one of the songs that uh, that I wrote in that little flat in in Amsterdam, just thinking about what I needed to do, how I needed to get myself moving again. And a remarkably creative period since you've moved back. Yeah, very creative. Yeah, too much. (laughs) (laughs) I've just, I've done so much. Uh, You know, I moved, I made the album with more than a song and then I moved south and met my wife who I've been married to for 16 years now. Moved down to the south of Holland to a a province called Limburg and uh, met lots of great musicians down there. Uh, the piano player that uh, uh, Ian was talking about, Egbert Derricks, the jazz piano player, I made two albums with him. Quite early on, uh, being down there, I met the guitar player, uh, B.J. Bartmans. Uh, I call him a guitar player. He's far more than that. He's a songwriter himself and a producer, and uh, he's a minefield of ideas. He's got such a creative mind. Uh, and he, he and I hit it off immediately, and uh, he helped me put together a Dutch version of Matthew Southern Comfort, which is a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> but he helped me put that together and consequently put a live band together. And uh, we've now just finished our third uh, modern Matthew Southern Comfort album that's going to be coming out in February next year here in uh, in England. So what is it that makes Matthew Southern Comfort on these records? Me. I see it as an extension of who I was in those days. I had it in my head that the sound we made in the original band was not the sound that I wanted for Matthew Southern Comfort. Right. Instead of changing it, I bailed on it. And I'd started thinking about that and about if I'd stayed, what would I have done? What sort of changes would I have made? how would the music have been significantly different uh, to the point with me of me being happy with it? And I processed all this stuff and, and to the point where I had a sound in my head and I took that sound to BJ and said, look, here's what I hear. How can we put it together? I want it to be Matthew Southern Comfort. I want people to see and hear what I think Matthew Southern Comfort should have been. 
got to find myself a place where I can be and truly savor somewhere I can buy some peace and quiet it isn't that I even want tranquility but that's the point yeah you never really do unless you try it I'll write a song or even two I'll keep my mind off missing Time I'll figure out the meaning, the meaning to life, the meaning to life, the meaning to life. I've got to find myself a Meaning to lie. The meaning to lie. 
And the last song in Through My Eyes, your memoir is The Rains of 62. Yeah. Am I right that that goes way back? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's a song about yeah, my childhood growing up with a man that I believed to be my father, it turned out not to be my father, and uh, about leaving home because of that, because of us butting heads and um, going to London. And, uh, you know, I, I took, I took some liberties there because obviously it wasn't, uh, wasn't 62, <laughs> but, uh, it, it worked better in the song in 65. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, uh, I tend to reflect even more so these days. I tend to reflect in my songwriting, looking at the road I took as opposed to the road I could have taken, I, t- I tend to, to, to do that quite a lot. And I, I tend to look at things that I thought I'd processed and then realize that I hadn't processed them. And sometimes writing a song facilitates that. And you're in the middle of a tour where you and Ian um, talk about the book and play songs? Ian reads from the book. We've selected certain uh, parts of the book that covers it as a whole and uh, Ian does readings from the book and I play relevant relevant songs so it's you know reading and some music and reading some music or you could say that he plays songs and I do relevant reading <laughs> <laughs> it's, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a unique idea really because it, it, it started again completely by accident and we suddenly I suppose it's two creative minds working in tandem. I'm sat at his table again, and I, and I said, will you just listen to this here to see if it sounds right? So I read him a passage from the notes that I've been making yeah, that he's yeah. told me. And he said, yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And we do that three or four times, and then one day he says to me, he said, you know, you'll read quite well, and this sounds really nice. Mm. And you're being published by Root? They have a wonderful catalogue of uh, music books. They have some great stuff. I'm proud of my involvement on on a lot of levels because um, Ian Daly, who was always the the, the mastermind behind Root, came to me when he was a young man just out of university and asked for my help, if you like, with how to get into writing and publishing because I was already a little bit established. And uh, we worked together and then suddenly... Ian just took off like a rocket and, and was eager to develop his own publishing. And that's what he did with Root. So I'm proud that I was involved at that level, but I'm also proud that, you know, it was my music book, Bring It All Back Home, that led to them developing a, 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 a strand of music books. And since then, they've done tremendous music books. And they're, they're working at a really high level. The quality has always been... Top shelf. They work with Clinton, Clinton Halen now work with as well. Haley so and people like the that. Dylan books are coming out on yeah. route as well. And he and just put out <laughs> the Fairport book. Clinton wrote a book about the history of Fairport that's really yeah. good reading. Yeah. Yeah. And if you haven't read Ian's book, Bringing It All Back Home, seriously, it, it's one of the best music books in existence. It really is. Thank you. Things like this happen through friendship as much as anything creativity artist artistry is always going to be there if it's creative people but you know when I said to Ian Daly at Root I'm going over to 
to, to work with Ian Matthews for a few months to try and get him a, a memoir together. And Ian said, well, just tell him that we'd be interested in publishing it. Yeah. Now, that doesn't come out of any sense of what the quality yeah. of the book is going to be like or what the story it's going to tell. It comes out of trusted friendship because he knows that I'm going to try and find something really good. He know, Ian knows Ian's music, so he knows what kind of chap he's, he's dealing with. And between the three of us, through friendship, we come out with something. And that, for me, that was a huge motivation to, to do the book, knowing that at the other end of it, I probably have a, a publisher as well. Yeah. Instead of writing the book and then having to look around to find somebody that might be interested in it. Thank you so much for your time, Ian and Ian. Um, it's been such a pleasure having you here today in person, talking about um, you know this wonderful book through my eyes, a memoir, yeah. and as well, you know, I do recommend everyone check out the deluxe edition of the book, which also features a double CD of uh, the songs uh, covered in the book. Um, which really sort of adds to things. Yeah. Thank you yeah. so much again. It's been brilliant. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Somebody say, you better get here right.